My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. things that I feel contribute so much to me specifically my passion to work with indigenous community is my refugee journey at one point in my life I had to be displaced and forced to leave my land because of the war so I relate to that piece where if you are forced to leave your land it hurts and I feel like we've been exposed to violence we've been exposed to those harsh personal experiences our team and the community members that we work with, we feel obligated to continue those conversations. And it's our full responsibility as young newcomers and new Canadians to educate ourselves and educate our parents and other newcomers community. And we need to ensure that past injustices are not repeated. That's the voice of Hanan Nana. She's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada, We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Hanan Nana does research and policy work in the federal political context, and is also an outreach coordinator for the Syrian Canadian Foundation. She speaks today, however, in her role as director of the BAM Collective. The acronym BAM stands for Books, Art, Music, And the group is a youth-led collective based in Ontario that seeks to empower equity-seeking groups through community engagement and the arts. Nana arrived in Canada with her family in 2016 as refugees fleeing the war in Syria. As appreciative as she was of the opportunity to build a life for herself in a new context, of course the first couple of years were very difficult, including barriers in education and employment and more generally. She knew that once she was able to, she wanted to get involved in creating ways for other youth like herself to share their stories, to build opportunities for themselves, and to address the many issues that they were facing. A few years later, while she was studying politics at the Toronto University that's in the process of changing its name from that of an architect of the residential school system, she met another student and newcomer from Syria, Hani Mulia. They realized that they shared a similar vision for responding to the needs of youth, particularly newcomer and refugee, black, indigenous, and LGBTQ plus youth, and they decided to try and figure out a way to act on it. Their first step was, as best they could without resources, to actually talk with other young people about what they were facing. It became clear very quickly that while there are various kinds of resources out there focused on what variously oppressed young people face, youth themselves are almost never able to play a role in designing and orienting those resources. So they decided that would be a priority for them. And they decided that however they moved forward, they would combine their respective approaches. Given her background, Nana tended to respond to issues with politics and policy in mind, while Mulia, as a photographer, had more of an arts perspective. Their first event was in the lead-up to the 2019 federal election. It combined various sorts of youth-focused, non-partisan content related to the political system and to voting, along with youth of color both sharing stories of their own political engagement and also offering a wide range of musical and artistic performances. After the success of that event, Nana and Mulia set out to grow their team as a prelude to taking on more projects. They were aware of the gaps in their own experiences and knowledge, and reached out particularly to black and indigenous youth and to various specific communities. Again, after plenty of consultation with youth themselves, the expanded group, now a proper collective, put on a series of what Nana describes as engagement events on particular topics. 
Overall, the majority of both those early events and what they've done since have involved creating public spaces organized around youth priorities and interests, focused on both issues and various modes of artistic engagement, to give youth from equity-seeking groups an opportunity to share their experiences, their analyses of the world, and their creativity, to build relationships, and at least sometimes to collectively articulate visions for a better world. One strand of this work that has been particularly important to Nana is a number of events bringing newcomer and indigenous youth together. This has included events focused on mental health, on indigenous history, and on other things. In her experience, both groups of youth are keen for such encounters, and in the various dialogues that have resulted, multiple similarities in their experiences have become clear. Of course, their experiences of racism and discrimination are not the same, but a number of the barriers that they face are related, such as lack of access to opportunities, and frequently only being offered resources that are not grounded in their own cultures or attuned to the actual barriers that they face. The BAM Collective's work has ranged across issues like climate change, mental health, and gun violence, and the forms it has taken have included conferences, a series of social justice and arts cafes, publication projects, and community conversations. I speak with Nana about the barriers faced by youth from oppressed groups, and about the work of the BAM Collective. My name is Hanan, Nana, and I wear too many hats, but I'm currently working as a regional advisor at the House of Commons, and I also work as an outreach coordinator for the Syrian Canadian Foundation, so I work on operating programs for newcomers and refugees, more specifically youth and women. And I'm the director of BAM Collective. BAM stands for Books, Art, Music Collective, and it's Ontario's first youth-led collective and formerly in New York that works on empowering equity-seeking groups and creating opportunities for them through community engagement and arts. A little bit about my story. So I arrived to Toronto back in 2016. I came under the government support program of welcoming and resettling Syrian refugees. My family and I were so lucky to choose Toronto, our new home. So I landed to Toronto and, you know, like in my first and second year as a recent newcomer, I had some challenges entering the education system, but also the employment system. And I did feel like disconnected in my first and second year. I really wanted to give back to the community, but I did not have the resources that I need. And I really wanted to get engaged and create something that I've always visioned in my mind, working with young people and listening to their story and sharing their stories. At that time, I did not have the opportunity. So I had to create the opportunity myself to be a part of the grassroots. But while creating those ideas and setting up plans to launch the collective, I was at that time volunteering for multiple community organizations, which led me to learn more about the system, to figure out where I want to go for school, for example, or how to find a job to sustain my life. And then in 2018, where I met my colleague, Hani Molia, who is also a recent senior newcomer, I arrived back in 2015 and a Ryerson student, so both of us goes to Ryerson. And Hani shared similar vision. He also talked about the youth obstacles in entering the job market and the education system, and we wanted to create opportunities for youth like ourselves. He comes from the artistic talent. He's a legally blind photographer. And I'm more into the policy. So when we sat and talked about how to get involved, we noticed that I come from a policy perspective and he's an art perspective why we don't bridge both. So we bridged both and that's how we launched the collective. And I started working for BAM. How did you go from identifying that shared interest to actually launching the collective? At that time in 2018, it was right before the 2019 federal election. So we sat in a coffee shop and we were just talking about resources for equity-seeking groups. And we did notice a gap in those conversations for newcomers and refugees, Black youth, Indigenous and LGBTQ plus communities. 
So when we noticed that there is an interest for both of us in policy and social change, but at the same time in arts, we did some research. So, so we, we went into communities and we asked the youth what they're interested in. We took a look at the work that already individuals and groups are doing. And we did notice that there is a gap. Like whenever you invite young people or a specifically equity seeking group to events or to programs, most of the time they're not consulted with, but at the same time, they go to these programs and conversations in a creative way. So we wanted to bridge that gap. I remember Hannah and I were trying to locate an issue or something going on that we want to engage equity seeking and the youth in, and it was the federal election. So the federal election was in October. We decided to take that as a theme because the youth are interested to vote, but they have less opportunities. And some youth are actually not interested to vote. So we wanted to motivate them. So we said, let's test our idea. And if it worked, we will continue. If it didn't work, then we learned from that idea. So we started to design an event called Politics and Art. Very simple. We invited youth across Toronto and we asked them to come to the Center for Social Innovation. They listened to an unpartisan organization about voting and how to vote and why they should vote. And then we gave the opportunity for people of color youth to come and perform. So we gave them the stage and the mic to share their stories on public policy and civic engagement. But that was through art. So, for example, a poet sharing a poem on the struggles in that thing or someone who writes a book can come and bring their book. Uh, part of that component was having a space for people with talents. And this is something we've been doing since we started the collective young individual. If they have a talent or a small business, we give them an access for a free tabling or section, and then they can make profit of their work. We don't charge them for that, but we wanted to support young talents. It was a success to us. And I remember one of the feedbacks that came from a recent newcomer to Toronto who voted for the first time in their life after coming to our event. She said, I feel like I have the power and I should be part of my community. And uh, we knew that we made change by giving her the resources, but also giving the opportunities for other people to perform and share their voice. And that's why we continued them. In that early phase, before you were established as a group, what was your approach to reaching out and connecting with youth to find out what they needed and wanted? So at that time, there was no COVID, so it was more in person. So what we used to do, we used to go to events. So whenever we located an event or a conference, we used to go to those events and talk to the youth. We really wanted to hear if they are interested in what we're doing. So it was a great opportunity to listen what they're interested in. But also we used our personal connection and social media. I truly believe social media is so powerful because it helped us so much. We started channels, let's say, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and we use the features that are available. So, for example, on Instagram, we use the Instagram story future where you can ask them to recommend something or you give them a pull to share if they're interested in the idea or if they're interested in whatever you're recommending for an upcoming event. And that gave us the opportunity to consult with the youth and listen to them. And they gave us so many ideas. So uh, we knew that the youth were interested, for example, in climate change and mental health. And newcomers were so interested to connect with Indigenous people. And we worked together. So we engaged with them. We listened to them. And while we were doing those consultation conversations with the youth, we noticed that they're interested to join our team. So we were able to grow the team and form that collective, which now operates from two people, which is Hania and I, to 10 core team members after two years, we added uh, advisory board. So it's growing until today because it's by youth, with youth, and for youth. And sticking for a moment with those initial conversations, what did you hear from youth that led you to decide that, okay, our first event should focus on voting in the election? When we were talking to them in those events and on social media, they give us so many things that they're interested about. Like, as I mentioned, like climate change or mental health or civic engagement or reconciliation. 
But the thing that I would say encouraged us to host our first event, not just specifically on voting, but host the event was the gap that they mentioned. Most of the time, equity-seeking groups are not given the table. They're not given the mic to be at the table, or they're not even invited to be at the table. The programs, the organizations, and the other groups that are designing are designed for these groups, but without engaging with them. So we did notice that they're saying, well, I've never like got an invitation to go and talk about the program that I want. So they're not invited to design the programs. They're not invited to those conversations. So we knew that there is a gap. So BAM pushed that gap at an early age before we launched our first event on voting. And we asked them, are you interested in a specific theme? And a lot of them said, oh, like, we want to know about voting and let's start with politics and art. Some of them were like, oh, I'm not interested in politics, but can I come to perform? So we give them the opportunity to do so, even if they don't have an interest in voting, for example. So it was like more listening to their need. And their need was, I want to be included. I want to be heard. And I want to be part of this. And then we started to work together. So you had that first event and it was a success. What were the next steps after that for the collective? After that, Hany and I sat and we started to reflect on the success of the event. We knew we made an impact, so we wanted to grow our team. So our first step was looking at individuals that are interested to join the team, but we were so careful with even choosing who we want to join the team. We did notice that there is a gap for us. So both of us came recently to Canada. We did not have enough knowledge, for example, on Indigenous history and the genocide that committed toward Indigenous history. So we wanted to invest ourselves to learn, but also to work for that community as recent newcomers and do our part in education educating ourselves and our parents and other communities. So we started to search for specific individuals with different backgrounds. After the event, we opened calls for an Indigenous ambassador, and we started to work with Jenna, who is currently working with us as an Indigenous ambassador and advisor for Indigenous issues. And then we wanted to work with the Black community, so we also reached out to specific communities to engage with them. And that's how our team started to grow. When we started to have youth coming from different backgrounds and from different perspectives, the collective has started to grow more. And I have like specific ideas and Hani does, but I feel like when everyone came to one table, everyone had something to offer and we started to scale our program. So for example, after that event, we decided to run a series of community engagement events, highlighting multiple themes, but after consulting with the youth. And we did run, for example, climate change and the mental health conference between newcomers and indigenous. But at the same time, we wanted to operate more programs. So we started to work on digital stuff like book clubs or community events. We collaborated with a lot of community organizations. And I, until today, I always say collaboration was the key success for BAM Collective to be where we are at today. So whenever we were approached by an organization. If we share a similar mission, we've always said yes to them. And that's how BAM started to grow, working with different youth from different backgrounds and community collaboration. Tell me about the name. What does BAM Collective mean and why did you choose it? The name took us a long time to decide. I remember when we sat together and started to brainstorm, we knew that art was the only way that would engage with the youth at that time. Because we're highlighting so many important issues in the community. We're talking about social change. And it's not easy to open conversations on social change. It might seem easy, but it's not. From my experience, almost like three years working on this, I'll give you an example, gun violence. And gun violence, it's something that is so sensitive to the youth in Toronto. And it was so hard for us to open conversations. And the only way for us was to open this conversation was art. So we truly believed art was the only way for us to make change in the community. So when we brainstormed the names, we came up with BAM Books, Our Music Collective. 
Books, obviously, is something that we wanted to include. So we started to launch book clubs. We wanted to bring people together to discuss important books and talk about outcomes and actions through a specific book. So that was a big component of BAM Collective. And then music, in our events, we always host one component of the events, which is like music or performing. So that is also one of the biggest components that has to operate at the collective. And finally, arts, which could be any form of art, because we welcome all forms of art. And whenever people reach out to us, they think we're only an art collective, we'll only work with artists. But apparently, we do work with everyone. We work with policymakers, and we work with other community members. But we wanted to use the artistic name to attract youth, to tell them that this is not just a place to come and talk associated change and feel bored not included we want you to feel that it's a creative place and there is creativity for you to have fun but also to heal because we believe art is a way for youth to heal so we named it BAM Collective and also we feel like art was a shared language and a common language among so many people for both of us coming to a new country, we had to learn the language, for example, and start our life from zero. So we noticed that maybe some youth will feel disconnected because of a language barrier. So art could be a way for them to understand others, whether by seeing the piece or by listening to different music. And that's why we felt naming it as an artistic name would be more attractive for the youth. Let's talk in a bit more detail about some of the work that you've mentioned. What was involved, for example, in building connections between newcomer and indigenous youth? And why do you think that work is important? Hani and I opened this conversation when we started to design our programs and we questioned ourselves both as recent newcomers, what information do we have about Indigenous history? Do we have enough resources or are we connected to Indigenous youth? And the answer was no. So we ourselves as recent newcomers felt we are disconnected from Indigenous communities and we did not have enough resources. And Hani always says that I had misconception about Indigenous people, that Indigenous people don't like recent newcomers or immigrants because they think we're just taking over the land and that Indigenous youth are addicted to alcohol and drugs. So they did not tell us, for example, important things about residential schools, about the Indian Act. It was like misinformation. So it wasn't real information. I myself took a lot of courses in Indigenous history and Hani did as well. And when we worked with Jenna, who joined our team, we felt that it was an eye opener for us. And we still believe until today that a lot of people don't know about Indigenous history. So from our own experiences, we decided to offer programming through BAM. So we collaborated with Youth of Gravity in Regent Park and Jenna Robert, who is our Indigenous ambassador. We worked on a mental health conference, which was the first ever in Toronto to bridge gap between newcomers, immigrants, refugees, and Indigenous communities. And that conference actually gave us the opportunity to talk to mental health specialists, Indigenous youth, and newcomers and immigrants and see the gap. And they told us, we don't have resources and we're disconnected. I was observing when they were sitting in one table and sharing stories and reflecting and healing together through art. It was just a moment that I wanted to see moving forward. I envisioned that they're working together toward truth and reconciliation. So it encouraged us to do more programming. And then we started to apply for more funding. And we decided to host a conversation. It was hosted on July 1st last year between Indigenous youth and newcomers youth. At that time, we heard the horrible discoveries of Indigenous remains in the country. So we wanted to reflect on Indigenous history. So we had an elder talking about Indigenous history. We talked to survivors. And we gave the opportunity to newcomers youth to ask questions. And one of the questions that was addressed in the conversation as a newcomer youth was, how can I help? It was just a great moment to see that they are able to connect. There was performing between both Indigenous youth and newcomers. They performed in their own language. And it was just so cool to see how we can relate so much. One of the things that I feel contributes so much to me, specifically my passion to work with Indigenous community, is my refugee journey. At one point in my life, I had to be displaced and forced to leave my land because of the war. So I relate to that piece where if you are forced to leave your land, it hurts. 
And I feel like we've been exposed to violence, we've been exposed to those harsh personal experiences. So I, I felt what Indigenous people are going through, and I really wanted to connect. And since that conversation until today, our team and the community members that we work with, we feel obligated to continue those conversations. And it's our full responsibility as young newcomers and new Canadians to educate ourselves and educate our parents and other newcomers community. We are currently preparing to conduct a research on that just to encourage other stakeholders and government and community organizations and youth themselves to open those conversations because truth and reconciliation is important and we have to work together to achieve that. And we need to ensure that past injustices are not repeated. In terms of the systemic issues that both groups face, what were some of the other points of connection between newcomer and indigenous youth? There were multiple similarities, I would say. One was the lack of access to opportunities. Whatever, like there was a speaker or a performer speaking and saying, well, we do not, as for example, indigenous or as newcomers don't have access, everyone was knocking their head. Yeah, yeah, we don't have access to opportunities. But also whenever there is a resource available for both, it wasn't coming from the same group. So for example, a lot of newcomers were like, whenever I go, there is a free access, for example, to therapy, but I wasn't able to relate because that person does not understand my culture or they don't speak the same language that I do. So there is a language barrier one, but also a cultural barrier. So there is no cultural connection I can make and they will never understand me. Same for the indigenous people. Like, is there people that are actually understanding our experiences and the trauma that we went through? Like there is resources, of course, but those resources are not well designed and equipped to serve these groups. And the third one, which I think is also important, was that we're not invited whenever those resources and those programs are designed. So newcomers and indigenous youth, one of the recommendations was whenever you're working for us, you need to include us. You cannot design a program and serve our communities without including us and listening to our experience. Representation matters when we design programs. And of course, the discrimination and the racism that these groups face cannot be compared because each face, I would say, unfortunately, a different experience. So there are obstacles for both communities and we'll need to acknowledge that, which is great, but we will need to also find solutions and the solution comes when we engage with both and consult with them. Another one of your projects that I'd be interested in hearing more about is the virtual social justice and art cafes. The Virtual Social Justice Cafe was funded by the Ryerson Social Office of Innovation and is in collaboration with the Syrian Canadian Foundation. For that, we decided to work with the people of color youth, but more specifically, again, newcomers, refugees and immigrants, because we did notice there is a gap in giving the information to them on social justice. The inspiration was right after the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., we felt that we need to provide a space for young Canadians across Canada because virtual to come and discuss important issues that they are interested to talk about or issues that are targeting their communities. But we wanted to make sure that we're offering therapy for them or a creative way to talk about it because it could be hard to open such conversations. So we launched the cafe. It's just an informal space. We told people in our promotional materials, bring your cup of coffee, open your camera, or if you don't want to open, just chat with us. Tell us how you're feeling. We consulted with them through social media and emails, and we asked them what they're interested to talk about. One was Black Lives Matter. They wanted to talk about the movement. One about missing and murdered Indigenous women. One was about refugees and newcomers and the recent Afghan crisis. One was on gun violence and one on climate change. So we're currently working on more. We still have like a few sessions to finish the project. And the cafe always included an art therapist to lead the session. So we had always someone to perform or conduct an activity. So we make sure that they heal. And we also offered mental health counseling in all our sessions just to make sure if folks don't feel safe or if they want to talk to someone, there is always someone who's available to talk to them. 
What other specific projects that the BAM Collective has worked on do you want listeners to know about? There are two that I feel like they're so dear to me. The first one is the Rays of Hope, Youth United for Safety. We were funded by the City of Toronto last year. We wanted to reflect on the shooting that is happening in Toronto. And more specifically, we operated in Regent Park and in Scarborough. And those are the most highest areas of shooting. The vulnerable youth in those two areas are victims of gun violence. So we wanted to open those conversations, even though it was super challenging because we're talking to victims and to their parents and talking to stakeholders that are not encouraged to open conversations and they don't feel safe even to open those conversations. So we brought these people to virtual sessions, art therapy, and we just wanted to offer workshops of resilience and workshops of safety, how to protect themselves and how to self-defend themselves. We also had one session where the victims themselves came and talked about their feelings. We had mothers talking about how they feel about the issue, which was heartbreaking. We did apply for more funding and we did receive it. We're going to operate more programming on gun violence. So that will be our focus in 2022. And the second project is the Growth Magazine. It's led by high school students at BAM. It highlights also themes, but it's so creative. It's a digital magazine. We invite youth across Canada to share their art, multiple forms of art, and then we celebrate their success into a magazine. And then we use the magazine to campaign or launch events or apply for funding. It's a way to give it to the youth to share their stories. We're currently working on our second theme, which is highlighting anti-Asian racism. After COVID-19, we did notice the Asian community was a victim of racism and discrimination. So Maggie, who is an Asian herself, decided to lead this initiative. We applied for small funding, we got it, and we had the youth to share their stories of racism and what they felt during the past few years, and we had their art displayed, and we're going to work on the digital copy as well very soon. So given the breadth of the work that the BAM Collective is involved in, as a way to draw it all together, talk about your sense of how these disparate bits and pieces contribute to a larger vision of change. For me, like I always question myself that question, how are we contributing to a bigger form of change, and are we actually doing it? And I always come up to a conclusion, which is when I see young people come with this energy and this passion and working together, this is the change itself, right? But also the issues that we're addressing, I've worked for multiple organizations and I worked for governments at all levels. And I did notice that a lot of these big institutions and big organizations are not able to change and are not able to create a small change, even though they do have the resources. But I truly believe that the power, that the grassroots and those groups, like the young people that are working in the community, they do have the connection. They do have the resources and not big resources, but small resources. And they do have the power and the energy. And they are the ones that are aware of the issue and sometimes are the victim of the issue. So just having them coming together and collaborating and working together. And most of the time, we're all operating all our programs and sessions voluntarily. So we don't get paid for our time to do that work. And it's just because we want to see change and we want to be heard. And that's the change itself. When I see people coming together, giving back their time, and are brave to share their stories and talk about these issues, it's it's a bigger change. And this will lead, of course, because we will not be silent, this will lead us to impact other groups and other larger institutions and tell them, here we are, we need to be included and just give us the opportunity or give us a seat at the table and together we can make change possible. You have been listening to my interview with Hanan Nana of the BAM or Books, Art, Music Collective. To learn more about the group, go to bamcollective.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Yeah.